Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD News Director Will Stevenson. The Peoria City Council this week approved of a plan and funding for a proposed new downtown hotel. It will result in the demolition of the former Sully's location downtown on Adams and the Illinois Central College facility next to it. City officials insist it will not be the problematic project. The work that was done on the Pier Marquette was. Here is Peoria City Manager Patrick Urich from Monday night's City Council meeting. This is a redevelopment agreement that comes before you from Fulton Hotel Development, LLC. Um, that LLC has been formed by Keith Weinstein of Greystone Realty to redevelop a project site that includes the Sully's building and the ICC Purley building. The existing structures will be demolished and a mixed-use development will be constructed on the site. The project would include a hotel with 140 guest rooms, a residential lobby, meeting conference facilities, swimming pool and a fitness center, 50 residential apartments, uh, restaurant-related bar facilities, and some convenience retail. Uh, the total project is estimated to be over $57.1 million, with roughly about a quarter of that being qualified uh, TIF-eligible expenses. The city would reimburse the redeveloper 100% of its qualified redevelopment costs for the remainder of the life of the TIF, but only out of the tax increment that's generated on the project site. The properties are included in the downtown conservation TIF, which is planned to expire in 2036. So if the hotel opens in 2027, that would be nine years of reimbursement. With the nine years of the TIF, it's unlikely that all the reimbursement expenses, redevelopment expenses, would be reimbursed out of the property taxes paid in the TIF. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about this hotel being uh, our project and this redevelopment agreement being very similar to the Pure Marquette, and I want to make it very clear, they are two completely different projects. The Pure is a project that where the hotel was connected to the Civic Center, and it, the city granted the redeveloper $29 million and then gave a $7 million loan to complete the project. Here, all of the TIF funds generated by property taxes paid by the project would be reimbursed to the developer after construction. So I want to make that very clear. And if the development doesn't proceed and no increment is generated, there is no increment to be generated or distributed to the redeveloper. The city would also, as part of this redevelopment agreement, extend the Hospitality Improvement Zone Business Development District to include the project, which is consistent with all of our downtown hotels. That includes a 1% sales tax and hotel tax that's used to reimburse hotels and hoteliers for the capital expenses that they incur on the, in their projects and in their developments. If the development doesn't proceed and no hotel tax or sales tax is generated, there is no hotel tax or sales tax to be redistributed to the developer. The City Niagara Parking Deck will be available to users of the project in accordance with the contract, which will allow for 140 parking spaces for the hotel and 80 parking spaces for the 50 residences. The redeveloper will pay to the city a parking fee equal to $3 per occupied room night on a monthly basis with a 3% escalator built in. The residential apartment tenants would contract directly with the city or its agent based on our usual and customary practices and those costs would be applied from time to time as, as normal deck users would be. So if the, our monthly charges go up, those charges would go up. If the development proceeds, 
the Niagara deck will be nearly full. Without the development, it will stay in its current form, which is roughly at about 30% capacity. There's three milestone dates built into this redevelopment agreement. The developer has agreed to completion of the construction plans by April 1st of 2024, commencement of construction by January 1st of 2025, and construction completion by January 1st of 2027. If the developer doesn't meet those milestones, they can ask for, and the council would have to grant here on the floor of the council, a six months extension to those milestone dates. So that's something that council would have to approve. If after those milestone dates are not met, uh, or if the developer doesn't meet those milestone dates as extended, the agreement shall terminate upon written notice by the city to the redeveloper. Lastly, Sully's building uh, has been recognized and identified as a contributing structure in the downtown Peoria Historic District and is recognized on the National Register of Historic Places. The TIF Act prohibits reimbursement for certain costs if they are used to demolish, remove, or substantially modify a historic resource. However, there is an exception to that prohibition which provides that such prohibition um, applies unless no prudent or feasible alternative exists. The developer has submitted uh, documentation to us that represents that the structure's obsolescence and disrepair is such that there is no prudent and feasible alternative other than demolition for this. Um, the redevelopment agreement, as it's laid out, puts the risk of that compliance with the TIF Act onto the redeveloper, including uh, the fact that the city shall have no liability to the redeveloper if it is determined that the redeveloper is not entitled to that TIF reimbursement payment. And in that event, the redeveloper is responsible for reimbursing the city for any payments that we may have made to the developer. In short, the risk of demolition is borne entirely by the redeveloper. In conclusion, the proposed redevelopment agreement is completely different from the Pier Marquette Hotel project, and with reimbursements to the developer happening after completion of the construction, the risk of the development is borne by the redeveloper, not the city. And I'd be happy to answer any questions that council may have. I know that, that we also have uh, representatives of uh, the, the redeveloper here. Mr. Tom Leiter is also here in the audience as well. My name is Tom Leiter. I'm an attorney here in Peoria. And I'm pleased to represent the developing entity here, Fulton Hotel Development, LLC. I'd first of all like to say that this is a serious project. It has been under development for several years. The developers have invested millions of dollars, literally, uh, and committed millions of dollars, both in the development of architectural plans, engineering plans, uh, contracting with uh, professionals, uh, professional management companies, uh, market research companies, and have a contract to purchase the ICC Pearly building. And in that purchase agreement, they also have committed uh, substantial uh, earnest money deposits, which are at risk in this project. So it's a serious project and has been vetted by professionals. Uh, they have engaged the services of Commonwealth Hotel Management Company out of uh, Covington, uh, Kentucky, as the management partner. Uh, they have employed hotel leisure advisors 
to do feasibility and market research. Uh, the most recent report, uh, which I received uh, today, uh, is a 2023 report, a January report, that supports the feasibility of the project. They have uh, committed to the Hilton Hotel chain uh, to make this a Hilton Garden Inn, uh, the flag of the hotel. And the hotel uh, is different in, in many respects from the Pere Marquette, as uh, uh, Patrick uh, stated, but uh, it's different in the marketing aspects of it as well. It's considered to be a select service hotel, not a full service hotel uh, like the Pere Marquette or the, uh, uh, the Sheraton uh, product. Uh, it's a limited service hotel. It does not have a ballroom. It doesn't have convention facilities. It has some meeting rooms. It does that. It has a restaurant, uh, but it's intended to hit a price point that is different than a full service hotel. Now, Patrick mentioned and distinguished this project from the Pier Marquette and the commitment that the city made to the Pier Marquette. Uh, we really shouldn't even be discussing this in the same uh, conversation because it is so radically different. Uh, the developers are not seeking any money from the city. There is no risk to the city in this project. That's an important uh, thing to point out. The benefits to the developer in this will be the uh, use of the tax increment financing uh, district so that taxes, the incremental taxes paid by the hotel, would then be reimbursed to a certain extent to the developer over the period of the TIF. So that's the benefit that the developer gets from the city. But that does not place the city at any risk financially uh, or any contingent risk. There is simply no risk. More Week in Review coming up. There's a relatively new state initiative that's helping to make early childhood education successful. It's called Birth to Five, and two officials with that program talk to WMBD's Greg Batten and Dan DiOrio. Felicia Farden, Carrie Clark, good to see both of you ladies, and thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Thanks. Good morning. Felicia, good morning. Uh, uh, you are uh, the regional manager for this, of uh, this region, but I had never heard of it until a couple of weeks ago when you and I spoke on the phone. So give our, our listeners a snapshot of what it is you're up to. So I am the regional manager of Region 53, which covers Taswell, Mason, and Woodford. Okay. And then Carrie is the regional manager for Peoria County. Okay. So what we are trying to do is create an equitable and accessible early childhood education and care system. Um, we know that the pandemic kind of hurt things, but things were kind of on the downtrend before the pandemic. So we are going out and we're asking families, what are, what are you seeing? What are your experiences? In, 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 in what uh, uh, realms? Or is it all realms? Is it health? Is it education? Is it uh, accessibility to child care, Carrie? Accessibility to child care for sure. Um, education and home visiting, other programs um, regarding early childhood education and, and care. You know, access to child care. Holy cow. <clears throat> so... Uh, I was talking to a guy who's a postmaster uh, who, whose area is the south side of Peoria. And he goes, it's heartbreaking because I see moms 
uh, who have a two-year-old kid who doesn't have an extended family. They want to work. They yep. can't afford care. Yeah. It's like we have to figure out that gap because they want to go to work to support the family. But when you have a young child, those needs are so demanding. Yeah. Felicia, is is this primarily the the, the focus? It's not primarily that, is it? Uh, access to child care. That's one of the main. That's one of focuses. the big ones. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and expanding public programming as well. So preschool for all, early Head Start, Head Start, those programs. Okay. Trying to give um, families that full day of care, so they can work. And so you're in a uh, an interestingly like kind of beginning stages of something here. The way I understand. So correct me if I mess it up. You're, you're looking for information that, so our audience today could help you and they could pass this on to people that uh, could also participate in, in, is it a survey? What are we looking to do here? So we're currently doing focus groups, surveys, interviews um, to capture the voices of the families in our region. Um, right now we've, we're, we're pretty much halfway through action council meetings, um, which are stakeholders through early childhood. Um, so teachers, Head Start, local elected officials, healthcare providers, um, and we're kind of looking at the data and then discussing the data. And is it matching up? And do you need to hear from uh, parents? Yep. And grant maybe even grandparents. Yep. And, and how does one go about that, Carrie? What, how does one get you the information that you're looking for? Well, we currently have family councils um, in all of our areas, and we are collecting information from the people that have applied and and. Um, given interest in our family councils. So those are already set. I don't so, know. First, back up. What's a family council? I don't know what that is. Family council is uh, caregivers that have children under the age of eight with experience in the early childhood um, system. You mean like, like somebody that runs a, a daycare? Parents and caregivers. Oh, parents and caregivers. Not professionally, but parents and caregivers, whoever that might be for that age kid. Okay. All right. So the, you've already talked to some of those people, but they're already in your system, right? Absolutely. There's a lot of people that aren't in your system may not know and even know about you. Uh, so what do they do? So they we're looking for people for our focus groups, and okay. we are looking for people to fill out surveys and tell stories. Well, how do they get to you though? Birth to Five Illinois dot com. And then just is there you follow the link and they'll uh, you can sign up and the, somebody will get a hold of you and all that kind of stuff. There's a banner right at the top of that uh, that main web page um, that they can click and, and fill out any information that they would like to. Personal share. question uh, for both of you: um, uh, Why does this speak to you? So I have a son that's autistic. Okay. Um, since he was diagnosed, trying to find services for him was, it, that was a full-time job in and of itself. Sure. Um, and then I decided to go back into the workforce. Um, How I, old is he, by the way? He's nine okay. now. So uh, is it easier now um, because he's older or, or you've learned more, all those kind of things? What really made it easier was that he went into kindergarten yeah and they, so you, they provided an after so you program. had a, you had some help you had help people yeah. need help that's yeah. the, that's the bottom line in this whole world that we live in we all need help from time to time well, what about you carrie how did you come to to have this passion i'm a former child care director um at uh-huh. a, a daycare that was um, located in the south end of peoria okay so we had a lot of parents that struggled with a lot of the same Things that we're seeing, um, finding care. Yeah, just what that, Dan was talking about a minute ago. Yeah, absolutely. Finding care that fits their family's needs, whether that be second shift care, overnight care, weekend care for those jobs that may not have traditional work schedules. Um, we had parents that got slight raises for their jobs and then no longer qualified for child care assistance. Danny, the- tell that story. Tell that story. You know which one I'm talking about. 
Oh, yeah, there was locally a woman who worked, one of our friends owns a, a business you'd recognize. They loved her. And they gave her a raise, gave her a raise, and one day she came in and she said she would have to quit because it was going to cost her too yeah. much. They cut off her SNAP uh, benefits. We And we talked to Dick Durbin about this. They haven't done anything. When someone eases up in pay, we need to ease slowly down in, in reducing SNAP benefits and not have these yeah. hard lines that cut it off where it, they can't afford to go to work. To put somebody in a position to have to decide whether or not to have a job or take care of their child is, re, is a ridiculous scenario. Not in this country. We're, we're better than that, I think. So that's how you came to be here. Uh, it's called Birth to Five Illinois. Uh, Felicia and Carrie are the uh, directors of different regions, uh, collectively covering Mason, Tazewell, Woodford, and Peoria. Uh, did I leave anything out? That's all the four, right? Those four. Uh, um, well, my, my question is, though, and I'm still kind of fuzzy, and, and you used to be in child care. Are, are you filling the gap um, of getting information together to to help who? Politicians? Uh, child, uh, the child care providers, all of that. Are you kind of like the intermediary, uh, intermediary to kind of bring all this together? Yes. That's the, yeah. that's the, that's your goal. The that's best way goal. to describe that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. So again, direct us uh, to where we need to go, Felicia. Where, where, where our listeners know somebody or want to participate in getting you information about what people uh, want if, when they have kids that are under the age of five. So they can go to the Birth to Five Illinois website. Um, that's www.birthto5il.com. Um, there are there are places on there where you can share your family story, so they can really describe what what they've experienced, and then they can also click subscribe to our newsletter um, and get in contact with us through those web pages. Will you stay in touch with us? Because yes. is, is this and this is forgive me for the, this dumb question. Is this new? Yes. Yeah, it's been okay. what Illinois, the statewide initiative started about a year ago. Right? Okay, so this is all just rolling yeah. out now. Yeah. Post pandemic, all that stuff. It's important. This is, is important stuff. All right, so you guys promise you'll stay in touch with us. I'm and, sure. and if there's new developments or just things you need, holler at us and we'll be happy to spread the word. It's great to meet both of you. More week in review coming up. Governor J.B. Pritzker proposed a nearly $50 billion budget in his annual State of the State and Budget Address this past week. He cites better-than-expected state revenues and being able to pay for it all and wants to use some of those revenues to help fund expanded child care and early childhood education programs from ages 0 to 5. But State Senator Wynne Stoller of the Peoria area says the state can't afford it. He talked about that with WMBD's Greg Batten and Dan DiOrio. Hey, uh, the other day, uh, the president, or the president, the governor, rather, uh, uh, had a speech, a budget-related speech. Uh, prior to that, there was a, um, um, a movement by GOP members to encourage him to um, address this crazy utility cost problem that we're dealing with and how it impacts working families and so on and so forth. And maybe there's a way that we could... Uh, have some kind of a relief program set up. If I said any of that incorrectly, please correct, uh, correct me, Wynn, but uh, where where are we going with that particular much-needed effort? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think you said that right. There's uh, We've all faced the incredible sticker shock when we open our AMR bills here lately, and uh, it's really a result of, of bad energy policy. 
that has driven our costs up. And so uh, what we're trying to do is with this budget process that kicked off this week, uh, that's going to take place over the next few months until ultimately we craft a budget uh, at the end of May. And the pie that we're dealing with is only so big, so it's all about prioritization and what what things ought to be included and what, what shouldn't be. And one of the things I think that is important that we do include is uh, some relief for our families on the utility bills. Uh, especially for downstate families in the Amherst District that have been hit so hard here recently. More importantly, the question I want to know is, now Amherst says it's not our fault. Uh, We're just the distributors. I will give them that. Then whose fault is it? Our number one sport win, we got to throw somebody under the bus. How, how did our how did how did our energy prices get to where they are now? Yeah, well, well, I think everyone would agree that you know we want to continue this shift towards cleaner sources of of energy. But the problem is we've done that without an adequate uh, supply of clean energy available. Wind, you know, doesn't blow all the time. It's, it, it's, it's dark at night as far as solar energy is concerned. And we're too quickly closing down our traditional sources of, of energy. And so now we are, uh, instead of producing, just a few years ago, Illinois had very reasonable uh, energy rates compared to m- most states. But now we're forced to import uh, coal-produced uh, electric from Kentucky and other states uh, just to supplant uh, what we have uh, gone offline um, here in Illinois. And so if you take electrons off the grid and you're still pulling them uh, you're not putting enough on and you're taking them off, it's just supply and demand. And that's the result, uh, you know, that our, our prices have spiked like they have. I'm going to say this to you. Uh, I respect you very much and, and the effort to do this I agree with. But it did strike me when I saw the, 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 the information out there that the GOP was asking for this assistance or encouraging the governor to include it in his budget plan that that felt like something Democrats would do. Uh, not that uh, the GOP doesn't uh, have a heart, but, but assistance programs has not historically been in the GOP's, uh, on the GOP's playbook as much. Uh, your reaction to that? Yeah, so like I said at the beginning, there's a, the pie is only so big. It, this year the governor has said it's about $50 billion. And so I think it's important that we slice up that pie according to the biggest priorities. And the governor this year lined out uh, new spending program after new spending program after new spending program. And before we consider any of those new spending things, we need to take care of our basic responsibilities. And, you know, Ronald Reagan said a government program is the closest thing we'll ever see to eternal life on Earth. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I've never heard that before. That's fantastic. once they get started, they never end. They just yeah. keep growing, growing, and growing. And so when I, when we look at the pie and how we split it up, there are things like, yeah, can we provide some relate, uh, relief on utility bills? Absolutely. Okay. Another thing I'd like to point to is the underfunding of the developmentally disabled. I don't know if you, most people don't understand that Illinois ranks 51st out of 50 states plus District of Columbia. We rank 51st what? on supporting some of our most vulnerable in our community. Uh, In the last two years, we've underfunded our services for the developmentally disabled by $375 million, according to 
an agreed upon plan. Democrats, Republicans, all stakeholders came together and said we want to support this using the uh, called it the guidehouse study that says this is the rates that we're going to use to support our developmentally disabled. We've under underfunded that agreed upon plan by 375 million, but at the same time we're putting 200 million into uh, welcoming centers for illegal immigrants in Chicago. I think that's a, an incredible contrast. We should be taking care of our most vulnerable before we start supporting some politically motivated programs like that. I, I would agree with you on that. I didn't, but that's shocking to me. That is shocking, Danny. Long term, the biggest weight on our budget is pensions. And over the years, uh, especially public pensions, uh, over the years, there have people right here in, a, in Peoria, and I've talked to a few of them, who have come up with creative ideas uh, to amortize or whatever different options on paying those various pensions and the way we go about it. And I've never heard any of those come to fruition but the uh, a lot of people, Republicans especially, feel we have to somehow figure out how to solve this pension problem. Has there been any progress on that? Well, not really. This year, um, the governor is proposing making the, the bare minimum payment, the lowest pension payment that is allowed by law, which is approximately $9.5 billion into our pension. But what's astounding is our pension liability, our overall pension debt uh, is about $140 billion now. That's up $10 billion over the prior year, and it's a near, near record. $140 billion, and basically there was the governor, I don't even think he mentioned it in his speech. And so, you know, there are certainly ideas and opportunities that we can have to address this, but uh, there's just not a conversation in Springfield that I'm hearing of any appetite whatsoever to really get serious and address the pension problem. Well, those two issues that you brought up today, the uh, assistance for utility costs relief and uh, the, the developmentally challenged assistance that we rank 51st in, that is embarrassing. Uh, those are two items we're going to keep an eye on. Is this budget process, you say this goes probably through May. Is, that when, is there a, a hard deadline on the budget? Yeah, the governor kind of launched his proposals this week, and now the legislature takes over and will debate that. I'm actually on the Appropriations Committee where we'll be involved in some of those discussions. And then it ends by um, uh, the middle of May when we uh, will be uh, Finalizing. Uh, actually approving the budget. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, real quick, Wynn, I, I, with Mike Madigan out of the way, and, and he, he ran an iron fist, is there at least a little bit more give and take between Republicans and Democrats on some of these issues? Yeah, you know, something that is kind of encouraging is we have a new uh, Republican leader in the Senate, John Curran, and uh, he has been um, uh, really leading on this and was able to work with the Democrat majority, and we have two committees that have uh, Republican and Democrat co-chairs for the first time in decades. Wow. And so, you know, there are some... There's a little bit of glimmer of hope here that maybe we can work together on some of these big issues. More Week in Review coming up. Almost a year after being diagnosed with aphasia, there's now a more detailed diagnosis of medical problems actor Bruce Willis faces. Willis's family announced Thursday the Die Hard star has what's called frontotemporal dementia, the various forms of which make up the second leading diagnosis of dementia following Alzheimer's disease. 
Here's part of my conversation about it with Dr. Deepak Nair with OSF Healthcare's Illinois Neurological Institute here in Peoria. There are you know, different cognitive domains. If you look at the neurology or neuropsychology literature, there, depending on which expert you lean on, there's about six different cognitive areas. A few might be things like, um, you know, memory function. Uh, another one might be executive function, which includes things like ability to make decisions and exercise judgment. Um, there might be emotional, um, you know, cognitive function, our ability to accurately and, and broadly express our emotional states. So there's all these different cognitive domains. And to uh, to meet the diagnosis of dementia, that requires that at least two different cognitive domains uh, are, show impairment, and those impairments are severe enough that, that a person is unable to do the, their, what we call instrumental activities of daily living. That would be things like managing your finances, taking care of your home, being able to drive, et cetera. Um, so when there are cognitive impairments that are in, severe enough to impair your ability to function, that's when we say, yes, this now meets the diagnosis of dementia. Um, you know, of course, we medical types, we like all of our jar- jargon, so the, the current terminology is that um, it's a major neurocognitive disorder. Um, of course, that's very nonspecific, and so it's really based on the clinical history that we can determine what is the most likely subtype of dementia. And most of our diagnostic tools that are published by the you know major professional societies and supported by research, they they only allow us to say that um, you know a person may have a probability of a specific diagnosis because ultimately. Um, the final diagnosis is made after a person dies and we are able to study the brain under a microscope. And so um, it's not surprising then that the Willis family at first had the confirmation that there was this language impairment, the aphasia, which is, again, one of the cognitive domains. And But it might have taken some monitoring over time uh, for uh, Mr. Willis to fully express the, uh, the broader components of the disease that we that we call uh, frontotemporal dementia. So it sounds like that maybe in, an, in we don't again we don't know in this case, but maybe in in a lot of cases that you really kind of had to wait for somebody to say, "Hey, I think I have a problem here." Unfortunately, that's true. There is a a I, I don't have a, a word large enough to express the magnitude. Of, of research that's going on uh, trying to identify what we call preclinical markers, right? Before a patient expresses symptoms, can we detect someone's risk of these things? Um, uh, for many of the FTDs, there have been several uh, genetic markers that have been identified, but unfortunately, um, it's not as though we could say, hey, you have this gene marker, that means you have X probability of having this disease. These are more loose correlations than they are strict causative mechanisms. Um, so uh, in our clinical practice, it's it, the identification of a diagnosis like this is almost always driven by a patient or family making a report that we're noticing some cognitive issue uh, and this needs to be evaluated. Do things like those, like how physical of a person you are, you know, like doing stunts and things like that, is, are those the sorts of things that can lead to these forms of dementia, or is there some other cause? I, I will cautiously say that's unlikely. Um, and the reason for my caution is 
there is still so much that we do not understand uh, about this disease and and many of the other dementias. Um, it, you know, probably the best uh, studied form of dementia is Alzheimer's disease, and in that setting, we know that in fact. Um, uh, people who are very physically active throughout their lifetime have a lower risk of expressing the disease, even when there might be some genetic component there. Um, but in the setting of uh, the frontotemporal dementias, there's not been such a strong correlation made. Um, and on top of that, we do know that there are some pathologic changes that are happening in the brain that are not necessarily related to even direct brain injury. So, um, you know, the for the most part, the frontotemporal dementias are referred to in uh, the neuroscience world as tauopathies uh, because they are closely associated with the accumulation of this abnormal protein called tau, T-A-U. Um, and the, the two, the, the tau and another protein um, called PDP43, uh, th these are the two most commonly linked uh, protein collections in patients with frontotemporal dementia. Uh, there's also um, uh, a less common one. I believe it's it's FUS. I guess it sounds like what you're saying is that this could really happen to anyone regardless of history or genetics or, or background or anything like that. Uh, yes, correct. Um, you know, when we look at the, uh, you know, population statistics on on um, the FDDs in particular, but dementias uh, altogether, um, this crosses all, um, all boundaries. Um, and so uh, we're not entirely sure if, um, if even the, the genes that have been identified um, uh, are, are a significant causative um, mechanism or if there's something, you know, what we call epigenetic, right? The combination of your unique genetic makeup plus, you know, the, the environmental influences, including things like how healthy you have been, um, your lifelong, you know, consumption of alcohol or, or uh, other drug, uh, potentially toxic agents to the nervous system, um, even where in the world you might live and, and things like, in, you know, true environmental factors like the climate and, um, you know, pollution especially, that kind of stuff. So there, there's a multitude of factors and, um, most likely this and other forms of dementia are multifactorial. Um, and so it's really, really challenging for us to be able to predict a specific um, uh, risk for an individual. All right. Uh, I'm going to run short on time here before long. So let me ask you about treatment. Uh, and, and along those lines, Bruce Willis is 67. Is this still treatable for someone of his age? And then let's talk specifically about how it's treated. Yeah, so I'll give you the bad news first, and that is that none of the known dementias have a treatment that will alter the ultimate outcome of the disease. So all of the known dementias are primary neurodegenerative diseases, which mean that they, the, the process of uh, decline is inherent in the, in the diagnosis. So everyone will continue to get worse over time. Most of our approach to treatment then has been focused on trying to minimize and, and compensate for the symptoms that are expressed. Um, in Alzheimer's, for example, Alzheimer's primarily affects memory, and so um, we, we use some medications uh, to sort of boost some of the neurotransmitters that are associated with memory storage and recollection. Um, <clears throat> the frontotemporal dementias are interesting, though, because for the most part, all of the subtypes 
um, typically do not affect memory primarily, uh, or at least the memory impairment is a late finding in, in these patients. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the form of FTD that uh, Mr. Willis seems to have is, is one of the uh, language variants, um, and there's two of those that I mentioned before. There's what we call primary progressive aphasia, um, uh, or it, that's also referred to as the semantic variant. Um, and then there's a different variant called non-fluent variant. And so in these patients, it is exactly what occurred to him a year ago, that the first sign was that there was an impairment in speech and language function. Um, and there's different components of speech and language, and so it really requires some careful assessment. So here, we don't have direct um, treatments for the decline in language function, but things like speech therapy uh, may be very helpful to allow the patient to compensate for the weaknesses that they're experiencing in the language, um, and also to come up with compensatory tools to allow them to communicate more effectively with their loved ones. Um, many of the, the medical treatments that we try to institute um, in FTD are really focused on co helping them control their behaviors. Um, uh, many patients with FTD uh, lose their, their frontal lobe and temporal lobe dis dis uh, uh, components of cognition, and that's why it's called FTD. So things like um, uh, controlling impulsivity that may uh, uh, manifest as part of the disease, um, uh, things like personality changes, um, uh, loss of emotional control. Um, so these are all things that, that we try to focus on. And then we, use, we end up using a lot of the medications that are typically considered psychiatric um, just to help patients manage their day-to-day -day, uh, experience. Do we know of anything on the horizon that might help make the situation or at least treatment better? It's been a little while since I've perused the literature, but I do know that in the last several years there's been look at uh, many of these genetic markers and these specific proteins that I mentioned before, uh, tau especially, looking to see if we can attack um, these chemical uh, and protein agents to, to slow down the progress of the disease. Um, you know, this is still in, on the level of, you know, laboratory research at this point, so we don't have um, any immediately clinical useful tools, but um, you know, the further we, the, the more we learn about these diseases, then the more options we create for developing treatments. So that's the goal. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD News.